All right. Well, hello, everybody. I'm James S. Aaron, and this is Marathon Author, my weekly podcast and author diary where I share lessons I've learned and mistakes I've made so that we can all move forward together. (laughs) This is week number two with the Keystroke Medium Network, and I'm really excited to be on board. Thank you so much for the warm welcome that I got from everybody in the group, and apparently the uh, number of downloads has... um, bumped slightly. So thank you for that. It's been really good to be on board. One of the things that Keystroke is doing to learn more about how people listen to their shows is a survey for listeners. So if you've got a chance, please go to keystrokemedium.com slash survey. And there's a real quick survey there. And if you fill it out, answer a few questions. If you want to, you could win a free copy of my SF novel writing workbook or the science fiction novel workbook is the name of the book. (laughs) I should know the name of my own book. But it's a print book that helps you basically outline your novel and be ready to start writing. And it's something I developed for myself that I decided to make available. It's only five bucks, and it's. uh, I hope it turns out to be a pretty good tool for folks. I'm already using it on my next book in the Vagabond Space series, and it's definitely helping me out to have everything in one place. So keystrokemedium.com slash survey, if you get a second. All right, a week has flown by. I'm recording this on January 27th, 2021, and it just struck me that I am pretty much at the year mark of having left my job and becoming a full-time writer. I am definitely feeling more like I'm in a sustainable place than I was back then, where we were coasting on my last couple paychecks, my vacation payout, the money that we had saved in the year prior, and there was just a lot of uncertainty. I mean, things hadn't quite locked into place on what was going to happen with COVID. I did not realize that, you know, when you're in a lockdown state, Um, that means a toddler is going to be, if you have a toddler in your house, she's going to be with you all the time, (laughs) which could create some challenges when you need to get your writing done. But we pushed through. I also, like I mentioned in some previous podcasts in February, after going to the grocery store and needing to shop for like a month at a time, I stopped buying beer, which is something that I used to have a couple beers every night and stopped doing that. And I actually haven't had a beer since then, I want to say it was mid-February, I've, I've stopped counting the days and I probably need to check that, but that's had a really positive impact on me. And I'm not a teetotaler by any sense of the word, but it's definitely helped me feel better and get more work done, at least in this current state where I cannot enjoy a beer with a friend, which was one of my favorite things in life to do. I'll just talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> so um, how did last week go? Last week was a was a pretty good week, and I, I I had talked about how live streaming has really revolutionized some stuff for me. And if if you didn't hear that, like basically my friend Jeffrey Haskell has been live streaming, and I also want to mention the fact that on February second, next Tuesday, he's going to be doing a live streaming event where he's writing the bulk of his next Wraith novel in twenty four hours, and he's going to be live streaming that the whole time, and he's basically going to a hotel room. He's going to start at 6.30 in the morning on that on the 2nd and be live casting the whole time. So basically writing, talking himself through it, chatting with folks while he's writing. So if you, I will put a link to his stream in the show notes as well. 
And if you have not subscribed to his channel, definitely recommend that you do that. Uh, if he gets a hundred, he's, he's like, I think he's at 84 subscribers right now. And so this is an opportunity to help somebody out when they are just beginning. I mean, how often do you interact with a streamer or YouTube personality or whatever? And they already have like, you know, a hundred thousand followers and like, who cares if you follow them or not, right? This is a chance to help somebody out who is just getting things off the ground and trying something new. So subscribe to his channel, check it out. And on Tuesday, I think it would probably mean the world to him if you stopped in and just said, hey, how you doing? And cheered him on while he's writing. But that's going to be a big, uh, cool thing that he's doing. And from him talking about that is what got me started. And I've been using Streamlabs OBS, which has, it's available for Mac and PC. If you just go with OBS, which is, it's an open source software that also runs on Linux. Um, it's not quite as user-friendly as Streamlabs. Streamlabs has taken the open source software and kind of made it a little bit nicer with an easier to use UI. It's a little bit easier to log into YouTube and things like that. Like basically you log into YouTube or you're using your Gmail account and it automatically sets the, the upload token. Whereas with OBS, you have to kind of navigate and find that in YouTube and then put it in your OBS profile and whatnot, which is not super difficult to do, but, um, Streamlabs just makes that a little more seamless. They also have a library of different backgrounds and, and themes and things that you can use for your live cast, or it's really easy to upload imagery. Like I've actually been using some artwork from the Sentience Wars Origins series that I love a lot that um, I just use that as a background. Then I put the, the different streams in that, you know, the picture of my mug while I'm writing my face. I mean, not, a, I don't have a, a cool mug. If I did, I would, I might put that on there. <laughs> And the the page where I basically show the For the Words screen in, Fire, in uh, Firefox, that's ForTheWords.com. And, and you can do whatever app you want. Like you basically just set it to show the app and boom, there you go. Like you hit start stream and it kicks things off in YouTube. I will open up another window that's separate of the one that's live streaming so that I can listen to the feed um, just to make sure that the audio is good and whatnot. And then go from there. And I've been writing for pretty much at least two hours a day. And there's a definite correlation where on the days that I get up and I write, I have made some pretty killer word counts. So on the days that I have gotten up, I've done at least 2,500 words. I've averaged 3,000 to 4,000 words on those days. And the days when I, I don't go to bed on time and I don't get up, like I've been getting up at 4.30 so that I can write between 5 and 7 because my daughter gets up by, by 7.30 typically. On those days, I've been averaging 4,000 to 5,000 words. I mean, it's been awesome. And if I could continue to do that on a weekly basis, I will make some real progress. As far So for last week, um, as far as word count goes, um, I ended up doing 20,180 words, which is a great week for me. It's kind of been the average this month since I've been doing this. So that's been awesome. The work that I've gotten done. So basically I was rounding out the end of Galaxy Sword, which I'm still not quite sure where this book is going to fit. Now this one's going to be for variant publications. It's got kind of a malleable publication date. The main thing is I just needed to get the series done because we're going to do a rapid release on it or just at least a consistent release. So like book one, then a month later, book two, you know, so on and so forth. No big wait between the books, but I want them all to be done before we do that. And this book kind of started out as 
Conan in space, and I wanted to do something that was really kind of wild, almost sword and sorcery, but in a in a science fiction setting. And it became sort of based on the like the gladiate like a gladiator story, and now it has sort of morphed into a kind of broadcast media critique. <laughs> I don't know. The bad the bad guy in the book is a uh, sportscasting network that basically exploits planets all over the uh, the galaxy to to use them for their fights. And the tone of the book has changed as it's progressed. So that's something that I need to I'm going to need to do an edit and go back through. And I actually I want to make it kind of lighter than it has been. I think starting out with Conan in mind made it kind of dark and heavy and I, that's not what I want it to be. I want it to be kind of a, like the character is a serious character, but it's still, I don't want it to be a super serious book. I want it to be entertaining. So that's something I'm going to really have to look at in the, the sec, you know, when I read through it for the first time, but it finished out at 78,000 words and I am really happy to be done with it. <laughs> Just finishing things is great. I, I like to finish things. And I like to be able to let a manuscript sit for a little bit and then go back and, and look at it again. Because it it really feels like I'm not objective until I can go back and do that. And then I'll that's when I feel like I'm turning it into something good. If it's when I turn a book in immediately and someone else just goes right into reading it or edit, you know, or the editorial process, I'm always a little less confident in it. And it's not my favorite way to, to do the process. <laughs> so, but I'm glad to be done. And I know that being at 78,000 words, like there's a lot of background detail and world building that I want to add, you know, to kind of just polish things up that I had not put into this draft. And so I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident it will end around 85,000 words, which is perfect for what we wanted to do with this book. So that's good. I'm happy about that. And now it's time to roll into the next project. So what I have realized is that when you have a big goal of writing a million words a year, that means you need to be ready to make every single day count. And you could take a couple days off to do some outlining and things like that, but that's going to mean you're already at a deficit. And so I'm running behind for this month. I think I'm at 60,000 words for the month. I could very possibly get to 83,000 at the end of this month, like I really wanted to, but I think I have to write an average of 6,000 words a day to get there. So we'll see about that. The problem is that I haven't done the detailed outlining that I know I need to do on the next Vagabond Space book. So that's really what I'm devoting the next few days to is to get that done. So I'm ready to just roll into the writing and start and start kicking it. But I can see that if I want this to be a rolling process from month to month, I need to set time aside to do the outlining. And that means I can't just focus solely on, on one project. I think with this next series, it'll be a little bit easier because these next three books are all in the same series. So I'll be rolling from one, you know, arc into another arc. I'm not going to be trying to jump from one completely different story into another one. So that could be a little bit different. And I've got for the rest of Vagabond Space, I actually have three other trilogies planned that could go along with this release. So aside from my Aeon 14 stuff and finishing up Galaxy Sword, like everything is going to be within the same universe. But it's just something I'm realizing that if if you have big goals and you want to make these daily word counts, you have to also do the planning, or at least I have to do the planning. You might be able to jump directly into another project and be fine, but that's what I need to do to be successful. So <laughs> that's uh, that's how I learn, right? 
so I'm going to be using the workbook that I, I put together. That was why I did it. And I'll be making tweaks to that as I go as well. So I'm excited to, uh, to use that. Let's see other things that have been happening. I, like I said, I came up with three additional series to go along with Vagabond Space. I got the titles done. I'm excited about that. Ran and passed some friends and got good feedback. And the, the covers are also pretty much done on those. I have one cover I need to buy that I'm going to talk to the, to the designer about um, doing that. Because I have like the first book in the series, the third book, and I need to come up with the middle book. <laughs> so I'm going to have to ask her to take a look at that, which hopefully shouldn't be a big deal. In fact, I think it should be fun. I'm kind of excited to see what, what she might come up with because she does great work. That's um, Rebecca, Rebecca Haskell at Vivid Covers. What else? That was it. I mean, I am very, I just feel like I turned around and January disappeared. <laughs> and so much happened this month, but it's also just gone. And now we're already into February and 2021 is rolling along, right? It's feeling like with the way the writing is going and having a, a goal of a certain word count for the year, you have to make every single day count because if you don't, it just adds up. And it's like you're trying to fight a sand dune that is pouring through a window. And if you let too much of it come through, it just piles on you, right? I was realizing that if I didn't make the 83,000 for this month, I can probably, you know, reset and add to February. But if I don't make February and it just continues to accumulate, there'll be a point when you realize it's just mathematically impossible. You're not going to make your goal. And, and so that is a little bit disheartening. Like maybe it would be better to focus on quarterly goals and, you know, come up with some good strategies and systems so that you make the word counts happen. You know, for me, it's just, it's like diet. I can want and and hope that I'll do things. Like I'll really hope that after I I leave the house, I won't have a desire to eat a hamburger. But then I still go and buy the hamburger. But but if I create the conditions so I don't do that, like if I eat something that's a bit more healthy before I leave the house, then I don't have that desire. You know, it was the same thing with wanting to have a beer after work. Well, if I make sure I drink a bunch of water and I have a snack or something that I don't have, I'm not dehydrated and I don't have the desire to go drink a a beer at my favorite place to do that. So, so creating the conditions for that success is something I'll be focused on. And that's basically the, the getting up every day. And so far it's working. My family is on board with me. You know, it's, it's not super great to have, try and be in bed every night by 10 and not to get to spend as much time with my wife as I would like, but that just means it kind of backs everything up. So we get the baby in the bath at seven o'clock. We get her in bed by eight. She's asleep by eight thirty. And then we get an hour and a half together. And that's kind of the best we can hope for at this point in our lives, <laughs> which is another thing I keep trying to remind myself is that this is, you know, it's a phase in our life and it will not be this way forever. I guess the other big news is that, you know, last, I think last week I had talked about the fact that I, I had applied for a job as a seasonal park ranger with the Bureau of Land Management. If you say BLM, people get like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so Bureau of Land Management, and it's kind of something I've always wanted to do. I I had an interview and then I got a preliminary offer to move forward with the job. But it turns out the job was going to be four 10-hour days a week starting in April and lasting until September, probably through Labor Day. Well, that was, you know, I had to do a lot of thinking about that. While I really wanted to do the job, it was very frustrating that I might have to compromise my 
writing, which is the whole reason I transitioned out of my previous job, which paid a whole lot more than any of this stuff. Um, I did it because I wanted to be a writer and I don't want to take on, like I've talked about why I took the job with FedEx and you know, it may end up being a source for health insurance, who knows, but for now it's, it's flexible. It pays fine for what it is. And it's a chance to get some exercise this was going to be basically taking on another full-time job. And I would be back where I was last year, where even if I'm getting up early and doing the writing in the morning, which is what it's turning out, that's what's most effective for me. I don't want to devote the majority of my time during the day to, to something else. And so I was, you know, frustrated about that, but I decided that I needed to focus on the writing. Like this is, if I'm going to make this work, I need to do it now There was also the kind of side thing that, you know, my wife is getting ready to transition back into a job. And if I was working four tens, it's pretty difficult for her to even work part-time anywhere. And when you, if you look at our income as a family, like between the two of us, like if we both work part-time jobs, that's actually more than what we need to cover our basic needs. And then my writing would just be money on top of that. And if my writing continues to make more money, um, we'll pretty quickly be back where we were even before I left my job which I'm on, I'm trending to do that. So my goal is to create a sustainable life that does not have us stressed out all the time and allows us to focus on the things that are important to us, like spending time with our daughter, spending time with family, doing things we'd like to do. Like, you know, one of the questions they asked me was to talk about if I enjoy being outdoors and and I do. And I was really looking forward to doing more camping this summer and being outside and taking my daughter camping for the first time. In fact, the whole reason I bought a Toyota Sienna van was to renovate it into a mini camper. And I've been really excited about that project. But if I took on this job, I wouldn't like, I probably wouldn't want to go camping if I was out at campsites all day, (laughs) or at least not do it with my family. I I don't know. Like, I think that's catch 22. Because one of the things about being outside out in the woods is you find all these cool places to camp that nobody else knows about, especially on BLM, because I've, I've done that before. The cool thing about BLM is you can, at least in Oregon, you can, they have a lot of like open high desert camp areas that you can go to, which is really cool. And it doesn't cost anything to go camp there. You just have to get there. (laughs) So, but anyway, that was, you know, I wasn't super happy about that decision, but it also really felt like the right decision because this is what I want to do. And I didn't want to compromise that. So I sent the email. I did say that I had hoped to have the position to be 20 hours a week, as opposed to 40 hours a week for six months out of the year. But I have not heard anything back from the supervisor. So that's fine. You know, you just keep on keeping on. And if it turns out next year, the the job comes open. I mean, it's the kind of job that will be open every year. So I'll have the opportunity to apply again and and at least know what it involves, which I wish they had put that in the posting. But (laughs) what are you going to do, right? So the thing I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this week was an essay that was making the rounds probably, I guess it was last week. It came out on January 10th. And it's called No One Will Read Your Book by L. Griffin. And it came out on the the Writing Cooperative, which is a site that looks mostly aimed at, uh, I think, the MFA track of folks. But I think a lot of the writers that are working for this website are very aware of indie publishing and self-publishing in general and tend to be fairly savvy about the writing industry. So I wouldn't say that it's, it's not a good place to find things to read. Just this story, it's it was one of those kind of drama stories that was floating through Facebook groups and, you know, was really good at getting a lot of engagement from people. So that's a good thing to look at because it's one of those 
those kind of headline stories where if it asks a question, the answer is always no. But in this case, it's kind of hooking into emotions that writers have and fears that writers have. And I, I want to go through it because I think it's, while it's pretty easy to debunk, and I think anybody who's been studying publishing for any amount of time would be able to do that, it's still a useful thing to talk about. So no one will read your book. Like even within the title, there is a question of audience. And that's the thing that I'll keep coming back through as I, as I kind of talk about this. I'll, I'll link to the story. I'm not going to just read it out loud, but the Elle, when she begins, she's kind of describing her beginning dreams about being a writer and being able to hold the book in her hand and, you know, ivory pages sewn into the binding, title embossed in gold leaf. Like, I guess she's describing the Bible. I'm not sure. But (laughs) she, of course, wants it to be a New York Times bestseller and she wants it to be a series on HBO. And again, she's just really focused on one book. And then she names some what she calls unicorns in the industry who kind of she thinks have achieved this goal. You know, Dan Brown, Anne Rice, Stephen King, genre writers, I'll say. that I thought that was kind of interesting. And how those writers lead people to maybe think this is a dream that is attainable. And then she says, you know, in the headline, no one will read your book. And one of the biggest ironies about this business is that there are lots of people who want to become authors, but that doesn't necessarily equate with the number of people who are voracious readers, says Rachel Deal, news director at Publishers Weekly. There is a disconnect. Not enough people read books. And this is true, but we are also in a really good time for people to be reading books, especially to be writing books in a digital format, because with the pandemic and people being at home and using devices. This has been, been, this last year has been one of the biggest transition times of people adopting new technology than the past 10 years. Like maybe the iPod, the iPod or the, uh, the iPhone was a time when people transitioned to a new technology as quickly as they are now in reading on their phones, reading on devices, um, because they're at home and they want, they've really come to appreciate wanting a thing going online being able to search through Amazon or whatever other store and getting it immediately. If they knew that they weren't going to have that experience of going to a bookstore, which I would, I would argue that probably most voracious readers don't actually go into bookstores that often they're going to get those books off Amazon um, or they're reading them through Kindle or other markets like that. But yeah, not certainly not as many people read as watch TV. And of course they're, they compare it to people who watch Netflix and, and things like that. Almost a third of Americans don't read books at all. Um, and the people who do read, they say only spend 16 minutes per day reading. They've got a link there. I would be really curious to know, I wish Amazon would share this data because they have it. The Kindle can tell how long people read when they're reading a Kindle either. And they can tell if it's on their phone, they can tell if it's on a Kindle device on, on the web. You know, if somebody's at work reading through read.amazon.com, you know, I wonder if they, they have that data. I would love to know what that is. But that, that info isn't necessarily shared. <laughs> and so we, we don't know that. But we do know, I think, for folks that are involved in the indie publishing game, we talk about whale readers and how if you can hook into those voracious readers that will read a book a day, that's really where you can be very successful if you satisfy that audience. And that is not a small audience by any means. But I will say this, one thing about this article, is it, it is it's got a bunch of sources and that's actually great. Like as she's talked to a a bunch of different people, I think the problem is that all these folks are talking about the, the traditional publishing space and 
getting most of their stats from from those channels. But she mentions, you know, how a reader chooses those books is typically tied to mass media, either with what Amazon recommends, what's trending in the New York Times bestseller list, or what their friends are obsessed with on Audible. And those are often directed by algorithms. Let's see, people tend to buy the books that are already really popular, Deal says. They look at the bestseller list to see what they want to buy, and that reinforces this tiny amount of books at the top. It's a very top-heavy system. The tricky thing in publishing is success begets success, but it's really hard to create that spark. I do totally agree with that, and that's the thing that Joe Solari talks about in his book, Advantage, and that is the idea of cumulative advantage, and when you create an ecosystem around yourself or around your audience, it can become kind of a self-perpetuating success machine. You know, if you look at people like Michael Anderley with his Catherine Gambit series, or even Mal Cooper with Aeon 14, Jeff Cheney with Renegade Star, um, they all have really rabid fan bases, uh, driven mostly by Facebook groups, but also newsletter lists and other ways to keep people tied in to what they're doing. And every time there's a release, um, all those folks are really clamoring to get that book. One thing I will argue against is I think, and throughout the article, they talk about kind of the mass success of certain books. There is a very viable career to be made from having those, you know, thousand true fans or even a hundred true fans is what some people are saying now, as opposed to having a small piece of these much bigger sales stories that other writers might have through traditional channels and whatnot. So she says, your book will not make the New York Times bestseller list. I guess, and she's got some stats about how many books, you know, do that, blah, blah, blah. I know plenty of indie writers who have made the New York Times bestseller list (laughs) and USA Today. It's not as easy maybe as it used to be, but it's very possible. You know, it's easier for some genres than others. But again, the readers that are looking at the New York Times bestseller list might not be your readers. So I think figuring out who your readers are and what they like, again, audience focus is something that's really important to success these days. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because I I feel like this is an article that's sort of hiding its answer until the very end. (laughs) But again, it all comes back to audience. Your book will not, or you will not become a millionaire from your book. That's probably true. I think we all know that. I think it's something that, I didn't quite internalize until I talked with a lot of writers that I thought were successful and I realized that they all still had part-time jobs or some kind of job, you know, and in the U.S. at least, like just being self-employed or basically an entrepreneur who's starting a business, health insurance is a big deal. And if you have a family, um, you know, I'm living this right now. The easiest way to kind of subsidize that in your life is to find a part-time job that offers health insurance, which is one of the reasons I'm at FedEx. (laughs) Um, Health insurance is expensive. I, we paid for it last year. This year is less expensive because my income um, on paper went down technically. So you got to be ready to look at that. But the fact that you're, you're not going to make a lot of money from the book is not the end of the, from a book is not the end of the world. It also, she's not necessarily talking about, she's talking about a single book, the idea of like a breakout bestseller. Most of the people that are doing very well on Amazon are writing series. They're writing interconnected stories with characters that the readers love. And so it's, you're not looking at just one book. And one of the things that Lindsay Baroker talks about a lot in the six figure author podcast is looking at books as digital products. Like that's essentially what we're selling is digital products. And I think this article is still kind of thinking from that dead paper perspective of a book and a bookstore and everything that went into to make that book, we are selling, you know, if you're on the indie side 
or even I would say, you know, I'm, I'm not fully an indie author. Like I'm, I'm just with other publishers right now. I have plans to publish my own things, but I would say that any writer working today who wants to be full-time and make a living at this will have a spectrum of income sources, but you are primarily selling digital products. Um, and that's good. I, you know, digital products are inexpensive. You're not spending a lot of money on cost of goods sold, that kind of thing. Like it's, they're easy to make, distribute. The ways of distributing them are always changing and getting less expensive depending on what you want to do. So that's a good thing. But you can look at the way other digital products are sold in the industry and books are very similar. You know, look at the way courses are sold. Look at the way, um, you know, training products are sold. I guess I just said courses twice, but um, they all can be very niche, you know, from like real estate to life, lifestyle improvement, um, fitness, you know, all of these people will have some kind of fitness program they're selling or their own book. They entice people to join an email list using a free giveaway, and then they kind of move people through a sales funnel potentially to get them to make a purchase at the end. Well, I think books are a lot better because you're making, I think, a an easier promise, which much, with much less investment from someone like quite often with these other digital products, like the product itself costs like, you know, $60 on the cheap end, all the way up to like $4,000 for a YouTube course or something. We're just trying to get somebody to take a chance on a Kindle unlimited book. And then which costs them, you know, $10 a month. And in a lot of readers minds, it's, it's a free book. It's almost like the library. And then once they enjoy that first book, or at least may take a chance on the second book, they're now they're moving through that sales funnel, and you're making money every time they move to the next, the next book. So, so while you're not going to become a millionaire, you can certainly make consistent income, <laughs> and and it's evergreen income that can be updated and changed. You know, it's not like making a bottle of whiskey, and once you sell the bottle of whiskey, you can't resell that bottle over and over and over again, which is the lesson I learned at the distillery. If you make an ebook and you sell it once, you can then, you know, it magically reappears and you can sell it again and again and again. And and so each book is a is also cumulative in, you know, as as time goes on. So one of the things with, you know, am, you know, ebook releases at least is that you often see a big spike and then kind of a settling down, you know, and then they'll reach kind of a con- a, a consistent sales rate, you know, in the the Amazon store or whatever store that you're tracking. So you've always, like every three months, you've got this this spike and settle. And then three months later, spike and settle. And each time it settles, it's a little bit higher than it was before. And that's why you see, like, when Michael Anderley and Craig Martell are talking about the 20 books to 50K concept, what that means, it's not that you write 20 books and make $50,000 all at once or or whatever it is folks think. It's it's over time, once you have 20 books, you have that consistent sales, or you should. If you're, if you're following all the things people recommend to, to identify an audience and serve that audience, then you're going to get there. And while $50,000 a year is not a millionaire, it certainly is a significant amount of income that plenty of folks in the United States live on. And if you're outside the United States, depending on where you are, it's also a significant amount of income to, to live on someplace, you know, you have a great life for that, um, doing the things that you like to do. So I would argue that this goal is framed in completely the wrong way. In what career do you actually expect to become a millionaire? <laughs> really? Like nobody goes into retail management and says, I'm a failure because I didn't make a million dollars, right? You make your 45000 a year, you do your job, and you're happy for it. You live your life. So <laughs> she's. there are some examples here of folks that 
you know, are kind of doing what I'm talk- talking about, but they're doing it with a big five where they have, you know, maybe 10 books in a YA series or urban fantasy, something like that. Um, but there are plenty of stories out there of people that are producing, you know, not even what we think of as rapid release, like a book every 90 days or so. They're writing one book a year and they're doing, they're doing fine. So, so I would take that with a grain of salt. The other thing is controlling your budget and how much it takes to live your life because if you only need $35,000 to live, depending on how you've chosen to live, then what do you need as disposable income, right? I mean, if having a 500 bucks a month to spend on video games makes you happy and you've got a killer gaming rig, you know, and that's what you want, boom, you're good, right? <laughs> so, so things to think about. I mean, it's really interesting that we judge the success of an author on are you going to become a millionaire or not? You know, what career does that? Um, we're just looking for reasons to feel bad. <laughs> and then, so now that we've, we've decided that, you know, no one's going to read the book, we're not going to hit the New York Times bestseller list, and we're not going to make a million dollars, which, you know, okay, now we say that self-publishing is not the answer. And it's funny because um, I'm going to skip down a little bit. You'll see that um, she uses Andy Ware, who's the author of The Martian, as an example of someone who, who did very well with kind of indie publishing, though that's not really what he set out to do. But it's what I will say about self-publishing is that self-publishing without a plan is certainly not the answer. But if if you want to be successful at self-publishing, it's like any industry. You go into it, you study it, you see where the sales are made, you look at how what the audience wants, you do market research, and then you develop what the market wants. If you develop a product the market does not want, it's not going to get bought. You know, I'm sorry. And the cool thing about self-publishing is that you can write the book of your heart, the cross-genre mashup of, you know, alien romance, space opera, thriller, zombie novel. And we live in a time where you can make that book available on a platform that has the potential for millions of people to read it. And you don't even have to go with Amazon if you don't want to. You could put it on Scribd. You could put it on Kobo, you know, through draft to digital, you could blast it out to, you know, however many 200 markets they have now. And when I was growing up and first looking at how to, how to write a book and publish a book, like that was not possible. That pipeline was controlled by publishers. And the only way to even get a book out to read, like I could write a story, print it, or even handwrite it in some cases and like give it to people, you know, have multiple copies of a thing that I printed out myself and gave to people and asked them to read. And then I had to ask for it back so I could give it to somebody else. <laughs> and, and that's not the world we live in now. I mean, and that's pretty amazing. So again, it gets down to what your goals are and you're a writer if you write. And obviously we can, we can judge the value of stories. Um, however, we're going to do that. You know, I would say if you, if you satisfy readers and make them happy, you know, E.L. James certainly made a whole lot of readers happy, and we can debate that all we want. But you have to be smart about it, and sorry about that. I had to pause because my neighbor was uh, working on his truck and revving the engine up until it popped and exploded. I think he just blew a head gasket, so that's exciting. Um, <laughs> you got to be smart about it, and she does, like, uh, she's got some quotes from Paul Abassi at Bookstat, which I think used to be Data Guy, if I'm remembering right? Yes, I am. So he's the guy that came up with an algorithm to basically scrape Amazon and develop data models on sales for Amazon, which a lot of, you know, when you look at other book sales data, like Nielsen and 
and things or book scan. Sorry, Nielsen is TV. Um, <laughs> that's only sales at the point of sale. So for a long time, what Amazon was selling is just kind of a, a black hole and nobody really knows. And Bookstat supposedly sells that, that information. But again, he's, he's sharing a lot of the data, the info that we already know that Amazon has shared that, you know, a thousand writers a year are making six figures on Kindle Unlimited. And that, that number only increases over time. So it's kind of a, I don't want to beat this too much, but self-publishing is like, yes, it's like any industry. It's difficult. You got to be smart. You got to pay attention. You got to pay attention to your reader. And, and if you do those things, it's actually, I would say certainly easier than trying to get a bottle of, um, you know, vodka into the grocery store because the grocery store, you got to deal with chains. You got to pay for shelf space. You got to pay for marketing. You pay for everything. And as much as folks complain about the amount of marketing required, you know, now we have to pay for advertising on Amazon or Facebook or whatever new venue comes up. It's like, well, that that's always been the case. Like the, the period of organic reach on Amazon was kind of a fluke. And there's no other industry really that kind of allows that once you scale to a certain point, you have to advertise. So as a person who has self-published and knows plenty of successful self-publishing writers and I really see it as an empowering thing for writers. This was a little frustrating to me. Uh, and I think sort of talking out both sides of the article's mouth, as, as it were, because there are plenty of examples that you could put on there of people who have done really well self-publishing. But when you look at their books, it's difficult to tell that that is not a trad published book, depending on, depending on the book. You know, the Kindle Unlimited reading audience is different than the traditional reading audience. Like the folks that buy Tor science fiction novels are looking for something different most of the time than folks that are reading on Kindle Unlimited. But that's not that's not bad. That just means that it's different channels, it's different markets, and especially as Kindle Unlimited has matured, I think of it almost as like a different publisher, right? It's I I still really believe that if you compare it to the pulps, the pulp magazines of the 1920s and 30s, like very similar. It's people that want to read they are hungry for new stories. They want to read them as quickly as possible. And they're, they want something that's going to entertain them. They're not necessarily looking to push the boundaries of science fiction forward. Because in a lot of cases, they have not read as much as those readers that are spending $25 on a, on a hardcover might have been. Like, I don't want to say that they're not the educated science fiction reader, blah, blah, blah. But they they may be a reader who their golden age of science fiction is like 1980 and they want to read books that remind them of what they read in 1970 or 1980 or even 1990 so not to say that you can't put interesting things in your stories that are pushing stuff forward for for you as a as a writer but think about you know thinking about your audience again is where you'll find success. And I wish that they had really mentioned that. I mean, it's good that she interviewed Data Guy. Um, a lot of articles would not do that, would not even go that deep, really. Um, you know, a lot of the other articles that talk about doom and gloom with book sales being down, especially this last year because bookstores were sold, were closed, um, completely ignore the sales on Amazon. And at least you, they do talk about the fact that, um, you know, Romance novels, for instance, sell more than any other genre, and readers in that category admit to consuming five books a week and spending $60 a month on books. Yes, that might be tied to specific writers, but those are people that if they like you, they will spend money on you all day long, right? (laughs) So 
she goes into some stuff about serial novels, which, you know, okay, whatever. That's not really, didn't strike me as much. I was surprised that she didn't mention Wattpad. Uh, she spent some time talking about Serial Box, which I don't think ever really took off. But I know people that are doing um, fine on Wattpad or using it as a marketing angle to find readers and bring them on to Kindle. Um, or there have been other opportunities to come out of Wattpad that where serial fiction has led to, say, Netflix deals and things like that. So I think being open to other possibilities of delivering your stories is is great. And that's that's one of the things that's awesome about the time that we're writing in now is as these different opportunities pop up, if you have a series you'd written because it's a digital product that you know, if maybe it's plateaued on Amazon and you're looking at different opportunities with it, why not split it up into serials and put it on a different platform and see how it does? You can do that. It's not a dead paper book that you have to, you know, get the rights back to or whatever. You control that and can try new things. So that's exciting. Um, then she says, you will not make money from your Patreon or your Substack platform. And <laughs> again, I think that comes back to audience. Like when I in my world, when I think of like the two people that I think are doing, they're using Patreon really well that I enjoy their Patreons are Joe Lalo and Lindsay Baroker. And Joe Lalo uses it in more of the kind of traditional sense where he, he has Patreons that he serves every month by giving them a short story. And he does that as a way to kind of expand his, his reach as a writer to try different things. But he's a fantasy, primarily a fantasy writer who comes out with a book, a big book every year. Um, or so. And so he does that to keep his audience satisfied on a monthly basis. And that works really well for him. Uh, and so he, you know, he doesn't make, none of, no one that I know makes crazy money from Patreon, but they make enough money that it's as worthwhile as if they were trying to play the short story game and submit short stories to magazines. You know, if you can make more than $600 on a month, I would call that a huge win on Patreon, but that's selling a, a professional short story which is even something most, most writers will not do once a month. So um, Lindsay Baroker uses it as part of her overall sales platform where she will reward her true fans by making a book available on Patreon first and then moving it into Kindle Unlimited so that she can um, you know, satisfy those fans who aren't necessarily in Kindle Unlimited, but then get it into the audience where she makes the majority of her money. Substack, I follow some writers on Substack, but I don't pay for their newsletters and... I can't really speak to that. But again, this I guess this is arguing that folks don't make any money on Substack, and I, I would have to agree with that. <laughs> but the fact the platform exists is cool. The, fa the fact that Medium exists is cool. Again, I think it comes back to what are people willing to pay for? And one of the things that I do think about when I read this is podcasts. And there are certain podcasts that I, I pay for. And I pay, like Sam Harris is a philosopher and meditation teacher. And so he has a podcast that you pay $60. He does two things. Like basically if you want to listen to the podcast and he has two, two things, like he publishes a shortened version of it that is free. And then he has the paid version and he does long form interviews and things. So typically every podcast is longer than an hour, but he, anybody can listen to the hour long one. But then if you want to do the paid one, it's $60 a year for it. And you pay up front or he says that anybody who wants it that can't afford it, just email and he will send, um, he'll give them a key to listen to it, you know, for free for a year. And so it's all about like providing that content to an audience that believes in you and you reach that point of goodwill where people want to pay and, and they're happy to pay $60 a year for that content. 
And so I see that as the kind of, if you have a way to deliver content to your fans and they believe in you and they want you, they want support you to provide more content, that's how you can be successful. And so things like Medium are not necessarily the platform itself are going to make you money. But if you have a, if you have a way to serve your fans through Substack or Medium or Etsy, say for signed copies of your books, then that's where it can be really valuable to you. And that's, that's how you'll make money. The platform is not going to make you money. It's, it's how you use the platform to serve your fans. So if Patreon is the best way to make it easy for your fans to support you, then yeah, do Patreon. Maybe it's Kofi, and you've probably seen a lot of people talk about, you know, buy me a coffee, um, which basically what the, it's kind of like Patreon, but it's much easier just to send like three bucks to somebody and you can put a link, you know, on your page or in a book. In fact, for the, the science fiction novel workbook, I tried to make it as cheap as possible because I wanted it to be something people could use every time they're working on a book. So I put in the introduction, like, hey, if this is useful to you and you want to throw me three bucks, here's the link to, you know, kofi.com slash James Aaron. And so it's really easy to, to do that. So that's where these tools can be useful. But I don't think anybody's going to make a coffee account and then just start making money. Like, that's not how it works, right? What I have learned and what I've seen from the audiences that love their writers is they want you to keep writing. That's what they, they want the stories. They want to know what the characters are going to be doing. The worst thing you can do as a writer is to start a series and not finish it <laughs> or put up a book one and then disappear. Like the fans, I think at this point in the Kindle, especially in Kindle Unlimited and the kind of rush of writers in, like you'll see every time a writer talks about, I put up my first novel, yay. Well, I think a lot of readers actually are pretty jaded about the first novel. Like they, they want to see a whole series and they want they want things to continue, right? They We live in a world that is very volatile for a lot of people. And so if they can count on you and trust you, they will support you. And so how are these platforms helping you do that? I think is the thing that I would look at. And also I've, I've started to notice a lot of fatigue with people. Like they don't want to be hopping platforms all the time. So maybe thinking about those direct sales on your website or ways that people can support you even with old school stuff, like, like a, a PayPal subscription, like people have had PayPal for years. Um, they don't have to change it and they just, they do that. What's, what's easier for your fans to, to support you is what I would, I would take a look at. And, and then she goes into, I think that she kind of goes through all these things and then comes back to the lesson that we all know and talk about, which is audience. And she ends on Andy Ware and the Martian and the fact that when Andy Ware first was writing the Martian, he put it on his own blog and he had an email list of about 3,000 people, which is great. And then he basically, somebody wanted it on their Kindle. So they asked him to put it on Kindle and he did that and made it 99 cents. And he sold 35,000 copies in um, 2014 just from having it on Kindle. And that was the only reason that he did that. <laughs> and then Random House bought it and we all know the rest of that breakout amazing story. But the fact is he had, you know, he was an, I believe he was a NASA engineer. I'm not going to look up his bio right now, but you know, he, he was a guy that knew his stuff. He wrote a story that spoke to a specific audience that filled a niche that people wanted at, at that time. Um, and if you think about the, the Martian being a story of hope, of resilience, of an individual against nature, with technology, with a snarky voice, like there's so many tropes in that book that appeal to a lot of different audiences when you think about it. And then the fact that he had 3000 true fans that, that believed in him, that wanted that book to be successful. Well, that's the kind of thing that when a, 
the large publisher came in, they were able to amplify what was already an amazing thing. And, you know, boom, Bob's your uncle. We, we know that story. You know, it's also really fortunate that Ridley Scott finally made a good movie and, and the Martian was one of the better science fiction movies. Like I went into that movie just so worried it was going to be like alien that I kind of had like one eye closed the whole time. Um, but I digress. So the article finishes on like, do you really like, should you try and self publish or should you really just come back and like try and find yourself an, a, a regular publisher? And that's sort of where she ends. That's her, what, what she thinks about is like, she's going to need to write a great book and then find a publisher that can help her reach a larger audience. And, and that's fine. I don't want to like bag on her. I'm just trying to engage with the ideas here, but I think there's, there are a lot of misconceptions in understanding publishing and the world that we're in. And I would always take away that we're in such a better time to be a writer than there ever has been. There are so many more opportunities now to get your work out there in front of people. There are so many more opportunities to talk to other writers than there ever have been to share information. And, you know, she does mention the, um, the publishers pay me hashtag where a lot of trad writers were sharing how much money they made from contracts on Twitter, which I don't go to, don't go to Twitter, but (laughs) that, that was the kind of thing that was sort of surprising to me because at least in the indie side, like people share a lot of that knowledge anyway in Facebook groups because people were coming together to share information on how to be successful, which again is kind of a digital marketing thing, right? Whereas the traditional publishing side is more about that, that writer publisher relationship, which is almost, yeah, I I tend almost to think it's just predatory, the same thing with uh, agents, but everything has their, their service that they provide you. Right. And if, if I was looking at a deal, looking at a deal like Andy Ware, and I was not used to that kind of deal and how much money they're talking about, like, yeah, I, I would engage at least a lawyer because they, they know how to deal with that. And I don't. And if there's an opportunity to make, you know, a small piece of a gigantic pie, then you want to make sure you're doing the right thing. But the, if you're talking about what the average writer gets in their first time working with a publisher, you know, a $5,000 advance. And a lot of people don't know if that's good or bad. Um, what should I be asking for? What kind of rights should I be asking for? Those are all things that I, I think I would recommend to any writer, even if you want to go the trad route and you're really trying to get an agent. That's awesome. Anybody can do that. But I would say those lines are, are really blurring. And I would recommend that you seek out communities where you can find more information. And I would start with the genre that you're really excited about. So if it's science fiction or fantasy or urban fantasy or romance, you know, romance has such a tight community and there are people that, you know, are willing to, are, are willing to help. And they, you know, romance writers, like I see romance, it's almost like the, what happens in romance is going to happen in the rest of the industry. Like they're ahead of everybody else. <laughs> so I, I really enjoy talking to romance writers and also watching um, what happens in, on that side of the industry. But that was my takeaway from this article. So I wouldn't, it it really feels like it was designed to get its hooks into writers, but there's a subtext here that if you find those true fans and you focus on audience and you find a way to serve that audience well, they will take care of you. And we live in a time that makes it easier than ever to do that with just a couple clicks. I mean, my thing with selling stuff anymore is I want, I want to be in the place where somebody can be lying in bed or sitting on the toilet and buy my thing. (laughs) You know, that's what's genius about Kindle. Like, you don't, you don't have to get a credit card out. You don't have to do any of those things that provide friction to make that sale happen, right? Somebody finished your book. They love you. They're, they're so happy with you. And then you ask them to pre-order the next book and it's a good deal. It's 
$2.99, which is less than, you know, coffee at Starbucks, why wouldn't they do that? And boom, you just, you know, you're going to make a sale. And so that is the great thing about this sort of industry that we're working in. Even if it's not Amazon and you don't want to be part of Amazon, find ways to make it easy for people. And services like BookFunnel are making it easier all the time. Um, BookFunnel just introduced the, uh, well, they've had it for a long time, the ability to, to sell audio. And then something that has come out, it, it looks like Audible is going to be moving to a model like Kindle Unlimited, where, or I'm sorry, Kindle Select, where if you put a book together in, in ACX and you paid for it outright, you can move that book in and out of Audible exclusivity, which that's huge. So to be able to have a book listed on Audible, but then also sell direct through BookFunnel, um, and do your own sales and things like that is going to be huge. Like I can just already the number of books that I have uh, with Mal that are in Audible that we haven't never been able to put on sale or really market in any meaningful way. Like that opens up so many opportunities and things like that are just changing all the time. So it's exciting. <laughs> I would say whenever you see an article like this and they seem to come out every, uh, you know, month, it, it seems like, like just step back, look at it. How many sources does it have? Who did they talk to? What's the overall, you know, can you, what does the writer want? And I think depending on what your outlook is, you can actually learn quite a bit from that. This one actually has some good sources. So I was really impressed with that, with that piece of it. Um, I did not go down the rabbit hole on the writer drama in other, <laughs> other Facebook groups when people were reading it. I just grabbed the article and was kind of chewing on it. So, so yeah, um, I'll put it in the, uh, the show notes if you want to check it out and you can um, feel smug just like me when I read it. <laughs> um, okay. Goals for next week. I'm excited that I got another podcast done. I'm excited to get it on the, uh, the keystroke network. So that's awesome. It'll be going up tomorrow, Thursday. I want to continue my writing streak. I, like I was talking about, I need to do some heavy outlining finishing out tomorrow so that I can jump into write, you know, really trying to keep my writing streak going. And I'm going to need to reassess February and it'll end up raising my word count goal a little bit from 83,000 to something a bit higher, but you know, break that, that, break that down by the day and it won't be quite so bad, but I'm just realizing if I don't keep up on this, I'm not going to make my goal. And I, I really want to do that this year. I see that as getting to a million words is really going to help me get the, the daily goals down that I need to produce fiction, enough fiction to, continue doing this, um, as my main source of income, which is what I want right now. So, okay. Other than that, oh, I had a book to talk about that I've been reading, but I will get into that next week. It's uh, it's called blockchain chicken farm and it's about, it's about technology and chicken farming in China. And it's been, uh, it's been a really fun read. So I guess I'll, I'll talk about that next week since I've already almost gone on for an hour, <laughs> but uh, until next time, if there's anything you want to let me know, shoot me an email at james at jamesaron.net. If you think that I was totally off base with this article, let me know. And if you have advice or ways I should do things differently, I'm always happy to hear it or if I can help you in any way. So please take a moment to fill out that survey, keystrokemedium.com slash survey. That will help a lot as well as far as directing what kind of content the the network and group has going forward. So Josh and Scott have big plans and they want to really be of service to the community, but um, they just want to find out what the community wants. So please let them know. And you could win a copy of my book. All right. <laughs> if you want to check that, it, that, check that out, it's uh, jamesaron.net slash SF workbook. Cool. Thanks very much for listening. And I will talk to you next week. Later. Mm-hmm.